Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk with Julia and Alex Latower, co-founders of Sovi Wine, the company that's created high-quality, non-alcoholic wines for when you want a glass of wine, but not the alcohol. We're excited to hear the story of how they launched their business after graduating with MBAs from Cornell and how they stepped away from jobs in the wine industry to go after this business. We also want to talk about what's next for the company. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And remember to rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom. This way, even more young entrepreneurs can find our podcast and be inspired. So welcome, Julia and Alex. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah. Good morning. Great. So it is so good to have you with us today. I wondered if you two could give us your 30-second pitch about the company and also tell us a little bit more about this process of removing alcohol, because I think that's really interesting for everyone. Hi. So I'm Julia. I am the co-founder of Sovi. Hi, Kathy. I'm Alex, also a co-founder of Sovi. So we created Sovi for when you want a glass of wine but don't want the alcohol. So we create high-quality non-alcoholic wines. They start out as traditional wine made in traditional winemaking methods, so picking the grapes, fermenting the wine, and then we remove the alcohol. The process is called vacuum distillation. It is where you gently boil off the alcohol from the wine in a vacuum. So what the vacuum does is it lowers the boiling point of the wine and allows it to boil off the alcohol at a lower temperature so that it's not cooking the wine, but it's keeping all of the aromas intact, leaving it with a non-alcoholic wine. The same method is used actually in winemaking when your grapes get too ripe and the alcohol becomes too high, so over 16 or 17%. And for tax reasons, it needs to be 14%. So a lot of wineries actually do remove the alcohol to get down into a lower alcohol amount. We are just taking the alcohol down to zero or less than 0.5%. So we started this process two years ago. We spent a year developing our, our first product, and then we launched our sparkling rosé in March of 2021. So about a year and a half ago. We have three wines, a sparkling rosé of Tempranillo, a sparkling white of Chenin Blanc, and a red blend. We source all of our wines from a family-owned winery that practices certified sustainable growing. And then we ferment the wine and remove the alcohol and create a high-quality non-alcoholic wine. Wow, that's really exciting. So you both have backgrounds in wine and winemaking and wineries. Did you grow up in California or like where did that come from? And I also kind of wonder like, do your friends who are winemakers like the idea of non-alcoholic wines or do they ever that like... That is a very good do question. Do they ever give you a hard time like, why are you trying to do this? So, but I'd love to know like in the beginning, like how did you get into wine? It's just in general as people. We actually both work in wine. So I will say how I got into it and then allow Alex to give his answer. So I started out actually bartending in college and I became really interested in spirits. So I did my college internship at a big company called Diageo doing marketing. So they own Smirnoff, Captain Morgan, Guinness, a lot of big brands. But I 
eventually caught the wine bug, as we refer to it in wine. So it's always you have a life-changing glass of wine and you're like, I need to go learn about the world of wine. What was the life-changing <laughs> glass? Of, do you remember what it was? Because I think we all want to go get that. I mean, it has to be in a certain setting, right? It That's doesn't, true. You can't just plan it. But <laughs> um, mine was in sitting in Lake Como and it was a glass of Valtellina, um, so Nebbiolo from Northern Italy. That was a little bit before I decided to start out on the wine path, but it kind of was ingrained in my memory. Um, so I decided to become a sommelier. I picked up a whole bunch of wine books and read them cover to cover, learning about the world of wine, uh, and then got a job in New York City after graduating college working for a master sommelier. So I did the exams, um, the intro and certified some exams. So you're studying and tasting wine every day, practicing how to open champagne and all the service elements. I realized that I didn't want to work in a restaurant as a sommelier. And so I left that, did a brief stint in retail, working at one of the largest wine stores uh, in the country. They carried 9,000 wines at the time. So just working sales on the retail floor there. And then I moved out to California because I really wanted to get into marketing. That's what I wanted to do originally. And so got a job at a company called Treasury Wine Estate. They were at the time the largest wine company in the world. Yeah. So they are based in Australia and then they have many wineries in California. And so I got a job in direct-to-consumer marketing there. And that's where I met Alex. Mm, there you go. I got the wine bug in Europe as well. <laughs> also in Italy or no? I guess the first glass of wine that really was a revelation was actually in France for me, but that was a couple of years earlier and it didn't really kind of flip on the switch entirely. It wasn't until I was staying abroad, but I did stay abroad in Italy that it kind of fully set in, but I was studying art history and um, obviously, you know, you go to Italy, you go to France, et cetera, the study of the art in situ and the intellectual exercises of cataloging art and placing art within a certain period and a culture, even in a geography, naturally translated over to wine and trying to put, you know, wine, especially in places like Italy and France are incredibly complex. You know, every village has its own expression. And I just felt from an intellectual perspective in college, I fell in love with trying to just kind of wrap my head around the complexity of wine. I wouldn't say that I was, you know, that big a consumer of it, actually. It was more just an intellectual exercise. But uh, straight out of college, I packed up my car. I, I went to school on the East Coast in Connecticut. I packed up my car and drove cross country to Washington State. And I got an internship as a, you know, a enology intern. So a winemaking intern at a winery in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, which at the time, Walla Walla was very much like an up and coming wine region. And I really enjoyed the wines there. And so it gave me this incredible opportunity to really kind of very quickly, I, I worked, there were two other people in the winery all day, the head winemaker and the assistant winemaker. So I very quickly figured out a lot on the winemaking side of things, production side. I also quickly learned that that wasn't necessarily the path that I wanted to take uh, long-term. So after my stint was done there, I transitioned back to the East Coast. I too worked retail. I started out as a sales floor sales associate and worked my way up to a wine director for a small retail group. I did that for a couple of years and then also realized that, you know, really kind of broadened my experiences in the wine industry. I wanted to go to the West Coast, specifically the Bay Area. So I moved out to San Francisco. I was a consultant for 
a little while to private collectors and then found my way to Napa working at Treasury on the direct-to-consumer marketing team. And that's where I was for the few years before I started Cornell. To go back to your question about the, you know, do people think it's strange that we are making non-alcoholic wine? I would say that when we started this, absolutely. We are very serious about wine. We still study it. We used to be in a lot of tasting groups with people who are master going, wine going for yeah, master of wine. And removing alcohol from wine is uh, not something that is highly regarded. At least it wasn't. Um, we're trying to change that. And so it was like, well, why, why are you doing that? I think with the growth of the category over the past couple of years, people are kind of coming around to the idea. And it's really great to have them taste what we're making because we're showing that it actually can be a, a good product. I think, unfortunately, the category just didn't have a reputation for quality and, frankly, probably pretty well-deserved. And so it's been really interesting to see some, like, you know, one of my good friends who's a master wine candidate drinking Sobe. Right, <laughs> right. That you should take a picture of that and put it on your <laughs> Instagram or something, for sure. Yeah. That's really cool. So did you guys come to Cornell with the idea of creating this company, or did you come to Cornell wanting an MBA and then just this idea somehow coalesced from that? We actually came to Cornell together. I don't know if we specified that, but um, we did not come in with the idea of creating non-alcoholic wine. That was something that we kind of started about halfway through our experience there. But we both wanted to leave the corporate wine world and do something new. Going in, I didn't know that that was entrepreneurship, but we got onto campus and the idea of recruiting for another large company that wasn't in wine was not something that was sitting well with me. And you start recruiting like from day one of your business school. Actually, it's for you started. Before. Yeah, even before I got into business school, I was like, I don't know that I can leave wine, but I didn't want to just go back to the job that I had before, which was an associate brand manager, which is a pretty typical job that you get actually out of business school in marketing. And so it's like, I want to do something new. And we took an entrepreneurship course and we were actually working on an entire, we did it together. We were working on an entirely different concept for the first year of our time there. And then we came about this idea of non-alcoholic wine. I'm not sure if we actually would have come around to non-alcoholic wine had we not already been in the mindset, already been kind of fairly well down a path of trying to build out the previous venture. And it was really in a lot of what you're doing in, in terms of just trying to conceptualize is just having lots of interviews with potential customers. And it was in those interviews, talking to people that the concept of non-alcoholic wine really kind of formalized itself. You know, there, there were customers who had, for various reasons, had to uh, pull back on their consumption of alcohol or stop completely. There was one class Julia took actually in wine marketing in the hotel school where the topic of non-alcoholic wine came up and that kind of sent us just straight down the path. That was when I then discovered the non-alcoholic beer because I was like, I've never even heard of this. Like, you know, obviously we've heard of the brands that have been around for a while. This is not something that was on our radar working at a large wine company. And yeah, we would not have started this if we were still in the wine world at the time, because it doesn't allow for like creativity of new ideas. You're kind of thinking about how wine traditionally 
is, whereas going to business school allows you to step back and think about something new. That's great. It does seem, though, as you mentioned, that there are an explosion of like non-alcoholic beers that are really good. Like I was just in Maine. I think that's where Athletic Brewing is. And there are like a lot of little breweries have their own non-alcoholic kind, which you never used to see before. And some of them are good and some of them are not. But you mentioned like what kinds of people might drink your product. Why do you think that is there like a change in society? Or are people just realizing they don't have to either like not have any or have a lot? Or, you know, what do you think are some of the things that are causing people to really want products like this? And who are the kinds of people that you think would be most likely to enjoy Sovi? So I think that the types of people are obviously there's the people who don't drink anymore for various reasons, whether it's health, medicine, or just not coping well with alcohol, whatever the reason is. And some of those people don't look towards non-alcoholic beverages because they're too close. But we find a lot of the people who need to drink less or not drink because of health reasons, but they still love wine are actually the core within the, I guess you call it sober group. But then there's a lot of people who want to cut back just because of productivity or fitness or the conscious consumer, conscious consumer, wellness, uh, all of those things. But I think what really fueled it actually is COVID. A lot of people talked about how much they started to drink more actually when COVID started and drinking more actually gets them to a place of realizing maybe I should should cut back a little bit. And I don't think that it would have taken off as much as it has in the US had it not been for COVID to really fuel the growth of that. Luckily for us, we were already working on this before COVID. And then this really helped grow our business because of the growth of the whole category. But I think that a lot of people reevaluated many things during that time. And one of them is consumption of alcohol. I think that's true. So one way that perhaps COVID has been a good thing, at least for your company, or in some ways helped move people in, in that direction. How do you describe like the vibe of Sovi? Like I know you guys have cans of product versus like a bottle and your, your website just seems really friendly and kind of like down to earth. Is there like a certain kind of persona or kind of brand that you are looking for and, and that attracts a certain kind of person or how would you describe that? When we were creating the brand and you're talking about the vibe and how how friendly it is that was intentional because a lot of wine can have snobbery going on and we we did not want to be like that while we are wine snobs if you will we don't think that should be a turnoff to any consumers who want to drink it it's all about being inclusive whether you drink alcohol or don't drink alcohol like or whether you are educated in wine or you're not. We wanted it to be really friendly and inviting and for people to come try our product, especially at the time because there was no other good non-alcoholic wine that we had to figure out a way of like, hey, try this. It is actually good. That's how the branding came about. The cans were a couple of different reasons. Uh, they are much more eco-friendly than glass wine bottles. It's not something that's talked about a lot, but Glass is usually not recycled in the U.S., but cans are. And so you think that glass is recyclable. You put it in your recycling bin, uh, but then it ends up in a landfill anyway. It's also uh, just a lot heavier. So we chose cans for that reason and also because of the single serve size. Maybe you're the only person drinking non-alcoholic wine. 
at a dinner party. So you only want to open up one serving of it versus an entire bottle. When we were tasting non-alcoholic wines, like we couldn't get through the whole bottle. We really liked that single serving size. That said, we are releasing bottles very soon. So, you know, wine in a bottle is not a novel concept. Uh, For us, it will be cans are a eco-friendly everyday option. You know, weeknights, we pop open a can when we want to and bottles for special occasions to bring to a friend's house to have at your holiday dinner. Yeah, when we originally conceptualized the brand, it was it was actually reversed. So we were going to launch in bottles and then roll out cans. But when we wanted to, you know, release a product during COVID, the supply chain was so backed up on bottles and since we were a brand new company, we had no track record or leverage with suppliers. You know, we were basically told, you know, it'll be 12 to 18 months to get glass for our product and it's a startup, wow. you know, you can't afford to, to wait that long. And fortunately, the pandemic really accelerated the adoption of cans, especially, you know, beer, a lot of breweries went from just doing kegs to cans. So the supply chain ball, the aluminum manufacturer rolled out new factories, there was um, plenty of aluminum cans available. So we switched gears. What you have to do if you're an entrepreneur, change your mind yep. a little bit. Are there some differences with non-alcoholic versus alcoholic products too, in terms of like shelf-like, like does a non-alcoholic yeah. wine age like a regular wine or are there, are there some things you have to think about in that area too? Obviously alcohol acts as a preservative. You think about like opening a bottle of whiskey, no one's like, oh, keep it in the fridge or drink it within 30 days. And you know, a bottle of wine, if it's kept in the fridge, can last a few days, no problem. Non-alcoholic wine and our products, we're not using a lot of the additives that some people use to preserve the wine once it's opened. For Sovi, the cans are great because it's pretty unlikely that you're going to open a, a 250 ml can and um, not finish it within a day or so. But there are shelf life concerns because it's it's a food product without the alcohol. For our cans, we say 18 months. There's a little date on the bottom of the can, whereas you don't expect that in wine. If anything, if you get a good bottle of wine, it probably benefits from being aged. Right. So there might be a little bit of education of people to not like just once you have bottles, they shouldn't just sit it in their cupboard for the next. Yes, this is not something that you're going to put in your cellar. Right, right. I think the label even says on our bottles to please refrigerate after opening. Well, that's after opening. But just in general, it's not going to age. The part of aging wine is actually oxygen getting in in small amounts through the cork. And that is what is doing the aging. Uh, Oxygen does not interact well with our products. It just by definition can't right. be aged. You won't be using corks in your bottles, probably. Or maybe you will. We are. We are using corks, a low oxygen transfer cork. It's oh it's technically gosh. not cork. No. It's a sugar cane product. They're fairly rare. Some of the, the higher end wineries out in California are now using these. I guess the benefits of sugar cane is it's fully sustainably harvested. It composts and they've done a lot of trials with these products uh, especially I think in is it New Zealand where it has a very very low oxygen transfer rate so unlike cork which is a natural product there's always inconsistencies in the cork this is a really consistent high quality product and it guarantees us a really low oxygen transfer so we're pretty confident at least in this first batch because it's a really small batch so people still get that experience of uncorking a bottle, which is kind 
kind of cool. Everyone wants that experience. So we are giving it to them with these bottles. <laughs> so you talked about some of the things coming up. You're going to be doing bottles. Talk a little bit about what you have on the horizon for maybe the rest of the year or, you know, in the next couple of years, some things you're looking forward to with the company. So we are releasing our bottles in November, conveniently right before the holidays. So that's a great time of year to get these into market. Then we have dry January. So dry January is the biggest month of the year for non-alcoholic products across the board. People consumed a lot during the holidays. They take the month of January off. A lot of companies in our space talk about how much their sales increase in that time period. So that's pretty exciting for us. And then over the next year, we're working on more products. Basically, the bottles are currently going to be basically a reserve tier to Sobe. So there'll be a price point up from our cans. The cans, basically, the expectation is that they will go into broader distribution. Currently, we're very much geared towards California in terms of our distribution, but the cans do really well and, you know, higher-end grocery. But we actually do have quite a few restaurants pouring uh, the cans by the glass. The bottles are more geared towards direct-to-consumer and then our retailers, especially there's a kind of small niche category of non-alcoholic specific retailers. They're kind of clustered in places like New York, LA, and now San Francisco is even uh, getting a couple. So the bottles, that the, the reserve tier will probably be geared towards that. And then down the line, next year, we'll be exploring further lines and expanding the current ones. That's great. So can you get Sovi wine a lot of different places or we, like up here in New York? Is there places, are the places you can find it or is it mostly in California? It is, as we are still small and self-distributing. It's mostly in California. We do have retailers in New York City. There is one store in Ithaca that carries it. We are though non-alcoholic. So unlike alcoholic products that have to go through distributors and there's a lot of regulation about how they're sold, we have the ability to sell directly to retailers across the country. So it's more as there are demand in different markets and retailers that are interested in building out their non-alcoholic section, we can sell it to them directly and and grow that way. Awesome. That's great. So you talked a little bit already about the fact that when you were looking at recruiting at the Johnson School that you were finding that you didn't really want to go into another company. Do you feel like you both have always had kind of entrepreneurial tendencies? Are there any other experiences you've had in the past that made you think, well, you know, this makes sense that we're having our own company? I don't know that I necessarily had what I would identify as entrepreneurial tendencies at the time, but I think my biggest struggle with working for a big company was not having full ownership over the projects that I was working on. Obviously, you own your piece of the project, but there's a lot of times where that project doesn't go through to the end or uh, you know, management makes a different decision. And you put all of this effort into working on something and you just, you really want to own the whole process of it. I just think of like the old company we worked for, they were releasing new products all the time, trying to, you know, keep up with the competition, but the new product pipeline had what they called gates, which was basically like formalized checkpoints at which finance production. I mean, 
everyone who had a stake in that product had to sit down and decide, okay, is this product meeting all the various thresholds, hurdles, requirements? And so to get a new product out the door would be a 12 to 18 month process to get through all those gates. If you even make it through. And most of the products didn't. So you you, you spent all this time <laughs> working on these new products to, to see most of them not even make it. Right. And were there a lot of those products that you think actually should have gotten to the public that were good enough and to make it? Sometimes, yes, definitely. I think, but I think what it doesn't allow for is a lot of innovation, specifically like non-alcoholic wine. I'm sure that there will be a lot coming out from the big companies very, very soon, but it wouldn't necessarily at the time be something that would actually make it through that gate process. I would say probably the the two biggest challenges there are production and finance. Um, Non-alcoholic wine costs a lot more to make than regular wine. So you have to figure out the margins accordingly. Removing the alcohol, actually you lose 30% of the volume in the process. So your COGS increased by about 40% to make it, which finance I'm sure would not be super excited about. And then on the production side, there's a lot of technicalities to it that just make it a more difficult and more delicate product to handle and challenges of making it taste good. There's a lot of trials that we do and being a small company allows us to be pretty innovative on that. We're always trying different types of wines. You can't just predict exactly how a wine's going to turn out or think that every wine is fit to remove the alcohol and taste good. So it's something that there's just a lot of different pieces involved that being small and nimble and being able to own that whole chain allows us to create something like this. That's very true. And do you find that your background in tasting all these various different wines through all the years of work and classes and everything that you've done, can you tell pretty well when you're tasting a wine whether you think it would be a good non-alcoholic wine or there's still like a lot of just trial and error to see if it actually tastes It's a lot of trial and error. It's not always predictable. We have figured out a certain style, but it's not based on our ability, like our training to taste wine before this. It's based on our trials of making non-alcoholic wines. And there are certain chemical compounds that will come through and some that won't, some that concentrate, some that just get evaporated away. So it's not easy, but we do use our training in terms of figuring out the blends and balance and what the final product will taste like. Yeah, since we're not augmenting the wine after it's been dealkalized with any kind of sweeteners or natural flavors, which a lot a lot of people do, obviously makes uh, making a consistent product really easy. Where we're able to really influence the ultimate quality and flavor profile of the wine is is in blending and specifically pre dealkalization blending. So for us, it's really it comes down to blending tons and tons of blending trials to really kind of nail exactly what we're trying to achieve on the flavor profile, the the palate profile. And so there's a lot of work on the front end that we have to do. So what kind of, what skills do you guys think both of you have that make this successful, your partnership, which I think is probably not easy to always be a partner with your partner in business. And do you feel like your skills complement each other? Do you have different kinds of strengths and weaknesses and what kind of like entrepreneurial skills do you think you're really good at? It's interesting that we actually come from this pretty similar background. So when we were first doing this, it's like, 
well, who's going to handle marketing? Because we both do marketing. Like that's what we both like to do. So trying to figure out how to work with each other on that. And we now have a good rhythm, but I think that it's more just about our ways of working. I am very project oriented. I focus on one thing at a time and I do that project and that allows us to think more like long-term or I'm the one doing all the financial modeling, building out the pitches, a lot of that that takes like a lot dedicated time. Whereas Alex is very good at keeping everything moving, actually responding to every email that comes into his email box. which if you want something from us, you should email him. (laughs) Generally the operations side of the business. But uh, yeah, I'm more focused on just kind of the the day-to-day and also productions. So, you know, the bottle project, and then we're we're lining up productions for later this year and early next year, which is just a lot of product project management and a lot of emailing and, and such. So it's it's interesting how my inbox looks super clean and hers is not. And do you have other people on your team too, or are you two managing most of the project right now? It's just the two of us right now. Yeah. We will have other people in the next year, but for now, just us. Right. That's awesome. So are there any tools that you would share that you find make your life easier in terms of the business, either digital or physical things or habits that you have that you do every day that you would pass along to an aspiring entrepreneur that have been helpful to you? Um, so for habits, I would say being able to kind of block time, I find that it's very helpful to either be fully on or off when it comes to working on the business, because it allows me to have more focus when I am working. And then it allows me to like decompress. So like actually setting schedules to, you know, on a Saturday, I'm actually going to have a Saturday day off to kind of recharge and set the tone for the week going forward. Because as an entrepreneur, you could work all day, every day, if you wanted to, there's plenty of work to be done. And it's really hard to turn your mind off of it because it's something that you are so personally invested in. So everything that you do matters, but kind of creating a schedule like time for work, time for relaxation is really important to kind of your mental state and ability to perform. I would say on the digital front, I don't know how popular it is today, but when we were in business school, Microsoft OneNote was something that I started using, probably because I just happened to get like a new computer with Windows and it came with it. And I just loved how I could put everything I wanted into there on particular projects that I'm you know, working on. And that to this day has been a great resource because I can look back. And so like, for example, the other day I was referencing some of our initial wine blending trials, which were really in depth. And it was like great to be able to kind of cross-reference the evolution of those trials to a more recent trial. And we're about to trial again next week. So it's a great resource to have all these blending trials and all of our production notes are all in one note. So it's almost like a time capsule that I can go back and reference just to make sure that we're learning from each one of our productions and take those learnings to the future. So during your time as entrepreneurs, have you received some good advice from other entrepreneurs or family members or anywhere, any good advice that you've received related to your business that you feel like you're really glad you heard? There is one piece of advice that we got 
while we were at Cornell in the entrepreneurship program. And that was about how to think of your competition. I think the words were putting blinders on to the competition, which sounds kind of counterintuitive. Like you want to know what everyone else is doing, but I would say more transparent blinders, but it's still helping you focus on what you are creating versus always worrying about what everyone else is doing. If you do kind of look at what everyone else is doing all the time, it one is very hard mentally to focus on what you're doing. And it kind of makes you worry that you were not good enough. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. And then it, it makes your strategy more scattered versus if you just build what you're trying to build, you're going to be in a better place. Right. Which seems like good advice when you mentioned that, you know, probably a lot of the bigger wine companies are, you know, in their R&D things, thinking about somehow, how can we create a non-alcoholic wine? Because it seems like people don't want to, you know, they want this, you know, along with the competitors already have, they're probably competitors that are rising up in these. So there that would are be tons a little of competitors. Scary. <laughs> yes. And so if I thought about that all day, every day, I don't know that I would get anything accomplished. And obviously a big competitor will have a lot of advantages that we don't. They can scale really easily. They have distribution, but we we're trying to create something different that only we can create. And so kind of just putting those blinders on, sometimes taking them off to see what everything, like what's going on, but staying on our path is really important. So I always ask people if they could tell me one thing that people might be surprised to find out about you. If there's any like unusual quirks or hobbies you have or some kind of unusual thing about you that people might not know that you are willing to reveal. <laughs> when I was thinking about this, I realized, so we have had several friends over to our new house recently. And the one thing that everyone comments on is our desk area. We actually share one desk together. One big stand-up <laughs> It's desk. a big desk. It has wow. you know two laptops and two screens, but they're like, how do you work like that? Like, how can you sit next to each other all day, every day? But in reality, when I first met Julia working at Treasury and direct to consumer, we were in the literally next to each other in like a desk area, a little kind of like cubby uh, cubicle area. So, I mean, so you're used our to time that. at Treasury, we weren't seated next to each other. Most of the time we weren't. In fact, Julia went off and, and got different roles and I got different roles, but that's just where the relationship started. And to this day, it's great because it allows us, you know, really obviously great lines of communication. <laughs> uh, and we've just kind of like, we've learned to work together. So yeah, we, most of the time we're working from home. We do have a co-working space that we go to in Napa as well, but it's, I guess, out of the pandemic, we've just gotten used to working at home. Right. That is impressive because you think you might need the little, like, I'm sure you have other places in your house you can go to escape each other. I but... just bought an alternate desk <laughs> for what I need to. Yeah. When we have, both have Zoom calls, conflicting Zoom right. calls, obviously. That could be challenging. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Well, that's great. Oh, well, kudos to you. You must have a good relationship then. That's good. Yeah. So do you spend much time like out at wineries or when you're doing all these blending trials, like are you just getting, and this is just for my own interest because I wonder like if you live in Napa, do you, don't you want to be like visiting all these wineries all the time? Or do you like get things into your, your house or wherever you do these and do blends? How much time do you spend out of the office? We source from one winery, so we'll go over to that winery around harvest time or to pick up samples. 
I'm going over there today, actually. Yeah. We just wrapped up harvest a couple of weeks ago. So trying to doing some uh, trials and tasting things that are fermenting. We also have all of the production, obviously, is at our different. So at the winery, at our partner that removes the alcohol at the bottler. So when we're producing a product, we are out of the office more going to all those different pieces, a lot of time going down to our fulfillment warehouse. But we do the trials actually at home, the blending trials. Originally did them at the offices of our partner that removes the alcohol, they offer a service where anyone actually can come in if they're working on developing a non-alcoholic wine, they work with them to do the trials. But we found that it was more efficient to figure out how to do it at home. It just allows us more time to be flexible and really work all day on the blending if we have to. So yeah, we got a whole setup in our garage. I bet. <laughs> right. True entrepreneurs there. Yeah, literally. We started in a garage and to this day, we still do all the trials in the garage. So. And you probably have like really detailed notes of how much you're using of each kind and what the blends are. And like, that would be something else you'd have to keep incredible yes. records of. But it's the, it's the process of actually doing the trial of removing the alcohol. So actually the setup to remove the alcohol. Oh, so that's in your garage too? Yes. Oh, wow. That is impressive. That is a definite garage entrepreneur kind of thing. It's great. I studied chemistry and then promptly dropped out of that in college, but it's bringing back, you know, chem labs for me. (laughs) Hopefully not terrible memories of chem labs. So tell us a little bit more about how people can find out about Sovi. So you can go to our website, drinksovi.com. And we ship our wines to all 50 states. And there's lots more information. You can read about all of our process of removing the alcohol, you know, where we're sourcing our wine, lots of information there. And then also check out our Find Us page for a list of retailers. So you can see if there's any stores near you that carry our wines. Great. So thank you, Julia and Alex. It was great to talk to you. Great to talk to you too. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. A special thanks goes to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and Bert Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studios.